Let me introduce you to our special guest today, Cindy Padnos, founder and managing partner of Illuminate Ventures. Sydney, welcome. It's great to have you here. Thank you. It's really my pleasure. So tell us about Illuminate Ventures. What is the focus of the firm? How big is the fund? What size investments do you make? Yeah, so Illuminate, um, excuse me, Illuminate, we're on our third fund. Uh, it's a $30 million fund. And our focus is exclusively in the enterprise or B2B um, category. That means we invest in startups that are software as a service, business applications and solutions, um, cloud computing, mobile software, but all of it targeted towards the enterprise. Mm -hmm. And uh, what, uh, what is the deal size that you do? What, what is the denomination of investment that you typically put in? Yeah, good question. So we're typically a company's first institutional financing round. We don't do notes. Um, and so we're frequently coming in after angel investors and before a Series A. Uh, typically okay. our round is called a Series Seed. And the size of that round can range anywhere from a million dollars to four or five million dollars, uh, depending on okay. really the progress the company's already made. And what um, what about geography? Is there any kind of? Um, I remember when we talked some years ago, you were a big champion of female entrepreneurs. Is it all kinds of investors, uh, all kinds of entrepreneurs, or is there any kind of bias towards women entrepreneurs? Yeah, I love that. We, we don't have any bias. In fact, we remove the bias. That's the whole goal. Okay. Um, so what we've done is we have created an environment we think that is really uh, conducive to expanding our deal flow. Um, and that means, frankly, that it ends up being more inclusive is the way I would look at it rather than biased. And okay. uh, the result of that is super interesting. Um, more than half of our portfolio companies do indeed have at least one female co-founder. But we never Great. use gender or ethnicity or age or anything else as, as part of our investment criteria. Fabulous. You and what about geography? Yeah, sorry. Um, we are focused exclusively on North America in terms of our investment. So that includes Canada. Uh, that could include mm -hmm. Mexico. But um, we are today, I would say 80% of our investments are in the United States and 20% and in Canada. But it's not a Silicon Valley exclusive. You invest all over the country and all not over all. North America. Yeah, sorry. That's a really important question, I think, um, one that we've done a lot of homework around and have had over the last five years uh, an interesting focus of being open to investments outside of the Bay Area. Um, our portfolio today, roughly um, a third, is outside of the Bay Area. They're in Places like um, Philadelphia and Pittsburgh and New York, um, uh, Seattle, uh, Santa Barbara, we're about to make an investment in L.A. So we have um, definitely a little bit different focus than many small firms do. Tell us what trends you're seeing in your deal flow. Well, you know, because we invest in the enterprise space, we tend to see entrepreneurs that are, frankly, a little bit more experienced. They've started um, a company before or they've been part of a startup before. And um, so they come to us with a really interesting set of knowledge about the space that they are building a company in, typically. 
Now, that can't always be true because some of these companies, frankly, are doing things that are de novo. So, for example, we have um, a founder who has built a really interesting company in the industrial Internet of Things category. That's a category we think is very interesting and has lots of opportunity to grow and prosper. But it would be pretty tough to say that someone's a serial entrepreneur in that space because it's a, again, it's a relatively new space. Right. So let's flip that question around. And um, now that you have been in this business for a while and, and you have an investment thesis, what are you looking for? Can you, you know, pinpoint where do you think, uh, where do you want to invest in? What kind of industry trends, what segments of the B2B space are of particular interest to you? Sure. Uh, we tend to invest in companies that are leveraging, I guess I would call it the exhaust of all of the data that is being collected today. And what I mean by that is that they take these vast amounts of big data that we all like to use that term, but the vast amounts of data that are collected by sensors, that are co collected in our SaaS business application, and they mine that data, and they do incredible things with it. Those are the kinds of companies we're typically looking for and invest in. They are leveraging machine learning and, and other AI-related techniques to build um, solutions that answer business problems that, frankly, in some cases, couldn't be answered at all before, and in others might have taken, you know, a, a huge number of man hours or, or effort to, to determine a, an answer, and today can be done in, in virtually a, you know, a, a click of a, of a, of a computer. Um, maybe an example or two would be helpful. Well, one of our more recent investments is a company called Nitrio, and that company basically captures all of the sales data, all of the communication that's going on between uh, a sales rep and their customer. And from that data, whether it be emails or phone calls or demos, they can extract from that really interesting insights. Those insights have to do with which sales are most likely to close, which questions are asked by customers most frequently, which sales reps are actually best at answering which types of questions. And I, I could go on and on, but um, those are questions that I know because I've, I've been a VP of sales, you know, early in my career. We used to spend hours and hours scanning through people's, you know, emails together and the communications with customers trying to figure out what was going on. Um, and now it can be done in a completely automated way. It's pretty exciting. So AI is a big trend, it seems, for uh for everybody that we are talking to, uh, AI is a big trend. Are there yeah. other, um, like, you know, we also hear cybersecurity in the B2B universe, cybersecurity is a big trend. Is that something that you invest in? Yes. In fact, um, we're working with a company right now that uh, we're likely to invest in that is in that B2B cybersecurity space. They're, um, they're focused on the front end of the process, though, meaning what what now the industry likes to call Development Operation Security, DevOpsec. My gosh, it's a mouthful. Mm -hmm. But they are in the business of trying to prevent uh, intrusions by identifying gaps and flaws and other issues long before the product is even released. Um, it's, it's sort of the holy grail. If, if you can get um, a product foolproof before it goes out, that's obviously a whole lot better than what we've experienced recently. Mm -hmm. So, um 
do you want to um, cite any other examples? You've already done a few of these um, examples of investments that you've made from in your current portfolio, and uh, and and give us some insight about how you decide on what to invest in. What are the criteria? How do you parse your deal flow? Yeah, good questions. I yeah, I'd love to. I'd love talking about our portfolio. That's um, pretty much the most fun thing that I get to do. So um, take a couple of examples. One of them is an example that may sound like something um, a seed stage, early stage investor wouldn't do, but it's, um, it's a very interesting company. They're located in New York. Uh, the name of the company is Cafe X Communications. Um, and we were introduced to them by one of our advisory council members. Uh, and what the company does and what they did at the time we invested was a call center platform that was web RTC based. But the reason I say why wouldn't we possibly invest is because they were a spin out. They were spinning out a very deep platform that had been built within a services business. Um, that's a hard thing to do, but we had a lot of faith in the founder. Um, we talked to many of their prospective customers and the company spun out with 30 employees um, uh, intellectual property, a, a real platform already built, and in their first year in business did over $3 million in revenue. Um, how wow. did we decide? How did we decide? It's a whole variety of things, I would say. One, you know, I personally have a background um, having been VP of Marketing of a company that served the call center community. So we knew the customer set and the business problem pretty well. Um, it was referred to us by someone we knew and trusted who was also investing in the company. Um, it was a founder who had built successful businesses before with an extremely credible um, and powerful team. Um, and it was based on what at the time was very new technology, WebRTC, um, and solved a real business problem. And there were customers we could talk to. So you add all of that up, and it, and it was you know, very much a winning equation. Yep. So I have a, a specific question that relates with our community. Um, you know, we have a global um, base of entrepreneurs, and very often um, entrepreneurs have their development teams elsewhere, um, whether it's India or Eastern Europe or, you know, other parts of Europe, but they have North America, they're North America companies, they're uh, they're aware of the fact that the you know if they're going for enterprise customers, North American customers are the primary customer base they want to go to, etc. How do you look at those companies? In how do you define North American companies? Are, do these kinds of companies fall within your scope, or are they outside of your scope? Uh, they're well within our scope. Most of our companies in fact, have at least a portion of their development resources offshore. So okay. as an example, um, we recently invested for our new fund into a company that has their entire development team in Australia. Um, and the CEO and two other of the founders and, and senior members are here in the Bay Area, and they plan to build out much of the rest of their team, um, sales, marketing, et cetera, here, because North America is where their market is. We have um, a team with a, a development team in Eastern Europe. We have another in India. Uh, but I will tell you, uh, interestingly enough, when you're here in the Bay Area, 
having a development team in Philadelphia or in Canada can be just as helpful as having one yes. in India. I completely agree. Uh, yeah. And completely so agree. we've had a, a very interesting focus on outside of the Bay Area, as we talked about before. And one of the approaches we've taken to that, we, we tend to do experiments. And uh, an experiment we started last year was something we call a student in residence program. Um, we have uh, a part-time student now at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh who is doing deal sourcing for us. Um, he was a first-year student at the master's program at the Tepper School there when we brought him onto the team. Uh, he participates in all of our deal flow calls on, on our Mondays and Friday calls, but also um, we found him an internship with one of our portfolio companies here in the Bay Area for the summer. So it's, it's really a virtuous circle on how we're, he's sharing deal flow, we're bringing more of the Silicon Valley ecosystem to Pittsburgh, um, and we think yeah. it's going to be a, a really nice collaboration over time. Very, very nice. So um, I'm going to ask you some broader trend questions. Mm -hmm. How do you process the current investment climate where capital is moving further and further upstream? Um, you mentioned that you come in, uh, you kind of come in before the Series A investment, but after the angel investors. So it sounds like you are, you have identified the Series A gap and positioned yourselves to mitigate the Series A gap. Can you elaborate? Sure. So it's um, always feasible. I shouldn't say always, but it's generally feasible for an entrepreneur to raise capital from friends and family um, and, uh, you know, the, the, the doctor next door, whatever it may be. Um, but there's, generally speaking, a pretty significant gap between that and what it takes, especially in the B2B world, especially in the enterprise software world, to get to that next step of raising a full Series A round. Today in the market, the expectation is that a company is running at somewhere between $1 and $2 million in annual recurring revenue. So, you know, somewhere around... Uh, gosh, 75K to 100K at minimum in MRR, monthly recurring revenue. So that's non-trivial, especially if you're selling something like developer tools that are sold at, you know, $500 a year or other, you know, low-end or, or products targeted towards the SMB space. Um, so we have found that it's really uh, an important role for us to play to help those companies get from um, minimum viable product from MVP the rest of the way to that million to million and a half in, in recurring revenue. That's the role that we play. We tend to come in and help with go-to-market strategy, with identifying and finding you know, perhaps even the first customers and business partners, channel partners, um, and iterating through that process of, of which uh, of you know, customers that may be the best low-hanging fruit to get started with. You know, um, my observation is um, the early stage investment game has kind of split into almost like four different segments. You have the, you know, individual angels or, you know, micro funds that are maybe 5 million to 10 million funds or, you know, individuals who do the very early stage and of course, friends and family. Then you have funds like yours that do the 
um, you know, getting up to 1 million ARR phase. Then there, are, there is another set of investors who are these 50 to $100 million funds who do the $1 to $3 million Series A. And then there are the larger funds. If, if somebody, if a company is already ready for a 5 to 7 million or 5 to 10 million Series A, then they, the larger funds can do the Series A. Otherwise, they are Series based B, Series C kind of funds. And, and that's, that's a big change from the way venture used to be, right? I mean, the $300 million funds were doing the Series A at one point. I, I think you're, you're right. The, the only nuance I would add is that those, that third type of fund that you mentioned, um, what I see them calling those uh, next rounds that are the small post-seed round is exactly that, post-seed, or a seed two. Um, they yeah. generally aren't called a Series A because you, you actually want to be careful about signaling what the message is you send about what stage your company is really at. So um, the other thing that I think is that a very important nuance for an entrepreneur is that there are a, a variety of different types of seed rounds. Um, I, the kind that we avoid, the, the kind that we won't touch with a 10-foot pole, and if I was an entrepreneur today, I wouldn't either, are those that we call um, club rounds or party rounds, where six or eight or 10 or 12, and I'm, and I'm not kidding, um, small funds come together, each write a 100K check to fund that company with you know a million and a half dollars for their seed round. Uh, that's a very dangerous situation to be in because no one investor has any real skin in the game. Frequently, there's no board structure to it. Um, when it comes time to raise the Series A, if the company isn't really fully ready, uh, what you find is that, that no one is stepping up to give them additional capital um, or to help make the introductions because, again, it just was never an opportunity that was important enough to them to put that kind of effort into. Um, we structure our seed investments with one, two, maybe at the most three other co-investors, but typically one. Um, I think our average across our entire portfolio is um, three investors total in a round. And uh, we think it's really important to be investing with like-minded investors. Um, it's also a bit dangerous, and I'm, I'm sure you've talked about this before, to have um, a very large fund writing a small check into your seed round. Oh, um, because very dangerous. Significant signaling risk that that fund um, doesn't come back for, to lead the Series A, the question out there is why not? What's wrong with the company? Uh, and it may have nothing to do with the company. It might be as simple as the fact that that partner had another company that they financed three months ago and just can't take on uh, another new investment right now. Yeah. So, I mean, what you're talking about is this trend that has come together in the last uh, you know, decade, I would say probably more in the five, ten years, is five years or six, seven years, is um, spray and pray, right? There's a lot of funds who are putting in a little bit of money in a lot of deals and, and just not taking any board seats or any real, as you say, skin in the game, but are in a lot of deals. And, and that, is a, that is a mode of investing that has become very popular in the industry right now. Yeah, I totally agree. And, and um, you know, we invest, I guess, in a way that I would say is with conviction. Uh, when we invest in a company, we're putting meaningful capital relative to the size of our fund into that company. 
Yeah. Which is the classical venture capital, the way Silicon Valley was, Valley was used to operate before. Um, I like to call about, old school. <laughs> pardon? Come again? Sorry, I like being called classic versus old school. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, switching gears a little bit, how do you parse unicorn mania? Um, as a seed investor, and I'm calling you a seed investor because you're kind of pre-series A, uh, you could get buried under, if you have a hot company, you could get buried under later stage liquidation preferences when the company gets flushed with capital. Let's say the investment thesis has been proved, there is traction, et cetera, the company becomes a hot company, gets on the radar of the bigger funds, and they just flood it with capital. But there is also all these terms. How do you protect yourselves? Yeah, good question. So. Most of the unicorn companies, and, and it's not unique, um, but most of them are in the consumer internet world, which is not a world that we operate in. We, again, invest only in the enterprise world. So, relatively speaking, the likelihood of that happening to us is much lower. Um, and, it's, and it's by choice. I mean, we, we fully understand that we prefer to invest in more capital-efficient companies. Um, even our company, Exactly Corporation, which went public, um, raised in total less than $100 million to get there. We have another company right now that's running at an $80 million annual run rate that took $60 million to get there, uh, and they've been profitable and cash flow positive for three years. So it's not impossible for us to be investors in a unicorn. In fact, we have one in our portfolio. Um, but... Part of what we have the opportunity to do along the way, since we're typically investing um, at, you know, certainly sub $10 million pre-money valuation, when companies get to be multi-hundred million dollar valuations, um, we, and, and investors are trying, you know, new investors are trying to get as much as possible um, ownership of that company, we do have an opportunity to take some liquidity uh, from time to time. And we have uh, more than once chosen to do that, uh, but typically only a portion of our presence in the company, a portion of our ownership, so that we're along for the ride, but we've already seen, you know, a nice outcome somewhere along the way as well. So you have co-sale rights with the founders? We, we in, don't. In um, with the founders, we certainly do, but we don't always exercise them, and, and yeah. Um, yeah. It's a right. Yeah, so that's, by the way, folks, um, this is something that you will encounter. By the way, one point I want to make before we move is that there are actually, unicorn mania is not just B2C. Unicorn mania is happening in B2B as well, and we've seen a lot of companies that are completely flushed with uh, capital at this stage uh, when they start finding traction and becoming quite, uh, you know, prominent and sought after. Um, but the other point that Cindy just made, and we were discussing about this co-sell rights, is something that founders should be aware of, is that you want to make sure, as you're negotiating your early stage investments, this, the, you know, pre-seed, seed investments, even the small Series A investments, especially if you're working with individual investors, small funds, et cetera, you have to make sure that if you are successful, they don't stand to get screwed. So they, one of the ways investors like to protect themselves is 
with co-sell rights that may, they may or may not exercise, but at least they would have those rights to, so that they can, um, you know, be whole in this process. So, Cindy, one of my observations is that we're in 2017. Lots of stuff have already been built. And nowadays, there aren't so many wide open opportunities, especially in B2B out there that, you know, you can build cons consistently billion-dollar companies on, which is the classic venture capital model of Silicon Valley. But there are many, many niche opportunities, capital-efficient opportunities. Some of these businesses need to be built for very small amounts of capital, like one to two million dollars, and sold for, let's say, 10 to 15 million, or, you know, even smaller, maybe invest 250K to 500K, sell for five to 10 million. Do you have appetite for these kinds of investments? What is your, you know, analysis of this dynamic in the industry? I think um, those types of businesses are really terrific business opportunities. Um, and there are businesses that an individual can um, have a very nice outcome with, but they are not typical of what would be appropriate for um, a venture fund. Uh, a venture fund has to plan for losses. Um, our firm is pretty unusual in that we have a, as low as a 10% loss ratio, but the average at the seed stage in the industry is between 30 and 50%. So if you're investing with an assumption that some are going to just be washouts, you also have to know that many um, are gonna make up for that. And that means um, returns that are 10X and above on, on some others in order to get uh, in the industry, you know, an average of four or five X return overall on a fund is what you're looking for. So as you step back and say, I'm an entrepreneur, and I've been one. I've been a founder and CEO of a venture-backed startup myself, and I had to make that decision. Do I go out and raise venture capital? Uh, because once you've done it, you're, you're kind of uh, along for the ride, so to speak. But um, frankly, I, I would think that the best way to fund that type of business would be through angel investors, uh, friends and family, even bank debt in situations where you're able to um, bootstrap a company to a uh, you know, small recurring revenue stream, that is a very bankable company uh, because of the recurring nature of the revenue. It's very predictable, and that's something that um, financial institutions will, will back. So it's a long answer um, to your question, but I think the right way to look at this is what type of investor do I need for what type of company, not make the assumption that every company needs venture backing. Right. There are actually, uh, there, is a, um, there is a bit of a trend um, of people uh, forming funds around this investment thesis, and I know some of them, um, but they work very closely with corporate partners. They almost work closely with corporate partners to understand, you know, what would they want done outside of their own, uh, you know, premises, so to speak. And, and then kind of have an understanding of the product roadmaps, what they would acquire and so forth, and, and fund companies that are well positioned into that. So this, these are small funds um, that would work with entrepreneurs in this mode, but with a very tight corporate relationship where the exit is better understood 
um, and the product roadmaps of those corporate acquirers are better understood. So it's happening, you know. Uh, so you, one way you one way to look at this trend is the way you're looking at it. Another way to look at this trend is that the loss, if you cut down on the loss ratio, and if you do have, uh, you know, a closed relationship with a set of acquirers such that if you have a decent return on each of the funds and the loss ratio is very low, that is another way to deliver a four to five X on the fund as well. It, it is, but I think the entrepreneur has to know they're signing up up front for an acquirer yes. to become a part of that large corporation, not an entrepreneur, and, and that the exit is likely going to be, um, you know, it, it depends on the goal of the yes. entrepreneur, I would say. Yes. But, I mean, their, their pitch is basically, you know, for two to three years of work, you make $5 million, and, and what is wrong with that picture? And I, I kind of think that that is a very nice picture. If you have, well, that, that, would, you know, that would be very attractive. It doesn't always work out that way. No, it doesn't, of course. All right. Well, um, last question, exit. You talked about exactly being one of your companies that has already exited. Do you want to talk about any other exits? Well, sure. Um, I mean, exactly is exciting for the fact that it first went public uh, in mid-2015, which was a very difficult time to IPO, and then about two months ago was acquired for a little over half a billion dollars by Vista Equity Partners. So a very, very successful outcome for that team. Original founding team still there, which you know, really makes me feel great. Uh, Chris Cabrera was the founder and CEO, and, and um, really, really great performance. Um, we've also had acquisitions in our portfolio, uh, numerous. Um, uh, one of our originally Pittsburgh-based companies was acquired by Autodesk. Um, it was a web-embedded 3D development platform. Very interesting technology, being able to do collaborative development in the cloud in 3D. Um, another mm -hmm. of our companies that was in the DevOps area was acquired uh, by New Relic uh, about 18 months ago, and they were building a platform that was being used by cloud um, development uh, centers and operation centers to be able to uh, monitor all of their servers for drift and, and other um, issues. Uh, another company um, that was had built a data science platform really designed to allow data scientists to do their work and collaborate rather than always having to build um, tools around their platform, as a company called Sense was acquired by Cloudera um, and is really the core of the recently announced uh, new platform that uh, Cloudera has just come out with. So mm -hmm. uh, those are a few examples. We've, we've had some really um, exciting outcomes within the portfolio and, and um, looking forward to more in the future. Great. Well, wonderful conversation. Thank you for uh, sharing your perspective and uh, look forward to doing some more work with you. Thank you. My pleasure. I really appreciate the opportunity.